0: We've been in a a year-long initiative called the Year of Biblical Literacy, and our hope this year is to know the Bible by actually reading the Bible, and we found that a lot of people reject the Bible but never read it, but just read, like, Facebook posts on it um, and, like, blogs, and that's not a good way to do that. So uh, if you're going to reject it, why don't you read it first? So we think it's the most important book ever written, um, but we also call it a library of books. It's the most important library of books ever written. And so we're asking you guys to read it with us. So you guys have been doing that. You guys have been reading um, through the Bible. And um, as we have been reading through the Bible, we are starting a series today, a new one, uh, through this year Biblical Literacy that we're calling The God I Don't Understand. And uh, we'll be doing a little bit of heavy lifting this morning, so I, I really encourage you to pull out your, your phones or whatever, or your like uh, Moleskine or whatever you take notes on. Take notes today, if you've never taken notes at church, today would be like a really good day to take notes at church so you can remember um, some of the things that we're talking about because I think this, this today kind of lays a foundation of, um, of like how, how, do we, how do we even start to understand and comprehend and thread the Old Testament and New Testament together. Um, one of the things that we do at this church is we learn. Sunday mornings are also a time of learning, so we're going to be learning today. Um, you guys have been in the Old Testament since January in your personal reading. Many of you are reading the Old Testament for the very first time, or maybe the first time in your adult life, and you just started uh, reading 1 uh, Kings today. Um, you just finished 2 Samuel. But I want to start in Luke 24, and th- I think this is appropriate to start in Luke 24 because it's the Sunday after Easter, so I think this text is very relevant. It's the account... Uh, of when Luke, um, after the resurrection, Luke writes this account of a couple of followers of Jesus leave town, and Jesus follows them out of town and starts talking to them like a normal dude, but they don't know it's him. It's the risen Lord. I mean, it's like classic Jesus. And uh, he's just walking with them, and he's like, hey, what's up? And they're like, we'll read it. You'll you'll get it. Um, And uh, once I read it, you'll you'll understand why I want to start here when we start talking about the Old Testament. Um, so let me start by reading in uh, Luke 24, verse 13. I'll read through verse 25, 13 through 25, verse 13. Um, now that same day, meaning the same day of the resurrection, the resurrection happened, uh, two of them were uh, going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they walked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you guys discussing as you walk along? And they, they stood still, <laughs> their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, said, um, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days, like this last week? Are you kidding me? What things, he asked. Jesus is just like, come on, tell me more. Uh, About Jesus of Nazareth, they reply, he was a prophet, powerful in word and indeed before God and the, all people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped, these were followers of Jesus, we had hoped that he was the one who's going to redeem Israel. And what is more? It's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that he had, they, they had seen visions of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. Then he said to them, now check this out, "...how foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets," which is the Old Testament, "...he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself." So he, sat, he was walking along this road with them and they're tripping out because Jesus was crucified and all their hopes were pinned on Jesus, but they had heard he had risen from the dead, but they were leaving Jerusalem for some reason. I have no idea what they were, was more important than that. They're leaving. Jesus goes and chases them down and says, are you, why are you so foolish and slow to believe? And then he gives them this Bible study that contains all of the Old Testament and how all the Old Testament ties to him. That's a good Bible study. This is our text this morning and this is where I want to launch from. Let me, let me pray. God, we um, ask this morning that you would teach us, that we would be people that sit under um, uh, the scriptures to be taught and learn, that we would become more like you, God, in this world, um, that you would make us more humble, more compassionate, more loving, more faithful and full of faith, God. Um, This morning, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, God, and may we receive by faith the things that you want to speak to this congregation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, it was the uh, beginning of March uh, last last month. Uh, it was like a random Thursday night. The beginning of March, I think the Warriors were playing. Um, I think they were losing. And out of the blue, Thursday night, randomly, uh, Kendrick Lamar dropped a new album, and the Warriors started winning. I think after that. Um, <laughs> Kendrick Lamar is a is a rapper, hip hop artist from Compton. His latest album. Uh, before this album that came out was called To Pimp a Butterfly. and was nominated early this year for 11 Grammy Awards. 11 Grammy Awards. The only album to receive more than that was Michael Jackson's uh, Thriller. So Kendrick Lamar was the most Grammy, the second most Grammy nominated artist ever. And it's a hip hop album. It's a rap album. Um, then out of the blue, he just comes out with this album called Untitled Unmastered. That's a great album title. Untitled Unmastered. And one reviewer of the album compared Kendrick Lamar to Jeremiah the prophet. And he said that to pimp a butterfly was his major prophecy, like Jeremiah's major prophecy, and Untitled and Master was Kendrick Lamar's book of lamentations. It's his book of lament. Um, He says, quote, it's a prophetic text of lamentations, a text which, like all texts of lament, reveals something about the author as well as society. And so... He's saying that this album that came out was Untitled and Mastered is his, is his lament, is Kendrick Lamar's lament of society, asking questions about God, wrestling with things. In the second song called Untitled 2, the second um, track on the album, um, uh, the bridge of the song, um, as it goes into the verse, uh, Kendrick says this. He says, stuck inside the belly of the beast, can you please pray for me? And then he goes right into verse 1, and he says, get God on the phone. Get God on the phone. He keeps saying that over and over and over again in the song. Um, it's like he sees this world, um, he sees life, he sees what's happening, what's going on. He's like, get God on the phone. I have questions. I have things I need to talk with him about. I need to sort some things out. And I feel like this is kind of what's going on to a lot of you as you are reading through the Old Testament. You've been reading some insane things in the Old Testament. And some of you are reading this for the very, very first time. And as you read through the Old Testament, you're like, get God on the phone. I need to talk. With someone, I have people pulling me aside when I'm walking, like, have, have you been reading? Are you? Can you? Like, people need to, like, what's going on here? Like, you might feel safe in the New Testament. Jesus is like an old friend of yours, but you are being completely disrupted by the Old Testament. It's almost like you don't know this God. Like, you, you may have um, thought this even as you're reading through the Old Testament. Like, I don't, even, I don't even know if I know this God. I know maybe the God of the, the New Testament, but I don't know if I know this God. I need, to, I need to sort out some questions. And this is the question, right? Like, we want to ask God, we want to ask maybe our community group leaders or um, our minister or some of the neighborhood ministers or, or, or the pastors here that um, what is going on in the Old Testament? Is the Old Testament God a different God than the God of the New Testament? Many people have thought this, have even said this. There was actually an early church theologian who made the claim that the Old Testament God was different than the New Testament God. Um, But he was thrown out of the church because he was a heretic. So so no, the answer is no. Um, There aren't different gods between the two testaments. But we still have questions about this. We have a lot of questions about this. We did a survey of our church uh, a a few weeks ago about how your time is going in the year of biblical literacy. And for the most part, this experience is overwhelmingly favorable. You guys are loving going through this personally and then community and then our lectures and stuff like that. Um, But we left a blank space for you to write in your questions so far. And most every single question that came in were about the Old Testament, like the law or the strange regulations or the violence or the wrath or the blood, whether it's violence blood or sacrifice blood, just blood everywhere. And what do you do with all these crazy stories in the Old Testament? So we have to um, step back. I think I, we wanted to do this series a little later in the year. We had planned on doing um, a like what's going on or di- di- dealing with difficult questions in the Bible once you've been disrupted by it. Um, we wanted you to get disrupted by it. I was hoping, I mean, we get, I get questions a lot like, what do we tell them about? I'm like, I want, the, I want our church to be a little bit disrupted by the Old Testament. So now that you are disrupted by the Old Testament, or maybe you have been, you're doing it, you're you're being disrupted all over again. What do you do? How do you begin to understand the Old Testament? So, this is the question I want to try and start to answer today. And it's it's and it's on the screen. Is the Old Testament full of timeless wisdom? Is the Old Testament full of timeless truth? Do we take it straight, laws and all, and say, this is to us? Now, i got to find the moral in the story. you have to find, as I'm reading my daily reading this morning, i got to find the nugget of wisdom for me right now. Is that what we're supposed to do? Um, someone posted an open letter to Dr. Laura um, not too long ago, online. Dr. Laura, is, uh, Laura Schlesinger is a Jewish author and a radio, she used to be a radio talk show host as well, who offers practical advice about relationships and parenting and ethical dilemmas based on Old Testament principles. So this person wrote in an open letter to Dr. Laura about some questions that they have, and it's dripping with sarcasm. Let me just read it to you. It's not on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. Dear Dr. Laura, here's part of the letter. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show, and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how to follow them. And bullet points. I would like to sell my daughter into slavery, sanctioned in Exodus 21.7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? (laughs) I have a a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11.10, it is lesser, a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this? Leviticus 21.20 20 states that I may not approach the altar, if I ha- altar of God if I have a defect, in my, a defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20.20 or is there some wiggle room here? I know Leviticus 11, 6-8 says that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But may I still play football if I wear gloves? (laughs) I know that you have studied these things extensively, so I am confident you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. You're a devoted disciple and adoring fan. (laughs) So that's a problem. When someone reads that to us, we're like, yeah, just read the New Testament. That's just, don't even... Don't even go there. Um, we have to deal with that, though. I mean, we're reading through this, and these are probably the questions that are, this is the, what, the stuff that's been disrupting you. When we approach the Old Testament as if it's full of timeless truth or wisdom, we can actually get into a lot of trouble. So, here's the thesis I'm going to be working through. And you might not agree with this at first, but just stick with me, and you might not agree with me afterwards either. That's fine. Um, I mean, you're free to be wrong. But the Old Testament, <laughs> I'm just, that was a joke. Um, and here, here's the thesis I'm working through. Um, the Old Testament is full of wisdom, not timeless wisdom. The old Te- hey, so I'm going to break this up in two parts. The F- Old Testament is full of wisdom. Part one, not timeless wisdom. Part two. Okay, so part one, um, the Old Testament is full of wisdom. Most of the Old Testament, especially the Law, comes in the form of a story. Narrative. So you're reading these laws, and you're reading this Old Testament, and you're reading narrative. You're reading a story. You're not reading propositions. God's interacting with the nation of Israel. He, he actually literally birthed the nation of Israel through the call and a promise to Abraham. Israel wasn't even a nation until God called Abraham to follow him and then made Abraham a nation and gave Abraham a sign of circumcision. And the reason why it was a sign of circumcision was like to put a mark on the the fertile part of your body so that you know that all of your generations after you are because of my promise to you. So that was a sign to Israel. Like God literally birthed this nation. And when we get to the part of the narrative that talks about the law and all those, those really crazy laws, you have to realize that it comes after grace. God called Abraham by grace and Abraham believed God and it was a credit to him. His faith was a credit to him as righteousness. And then Israel was slaves to, uh, to Egypt, um, the, most pow- one, the most powerful nation at that time. And God saved them out of that. So when you read the laws in Exodus or Leviticus and then again in Deuteronomy, you have to remember that all of that came after God saved them from slavery. So even the Ten Commandments start with a statement that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. I am the Lord your God who saved you. And this is what my saved people are to be like. This is what God was doing. So all of the laws that happened in the Old Testament happened after grace. God saved Israel and they made a covenant with Israel that she would be shaped into a nation where people all over the world could look and see the wisdom and the justice of God being worked through this nation at this time and point in history. So keep in mind when you're reading the Old Testament that God is after saving the world. That's what God said to Abraham. And I'm gonna, I am I want to bless the entire world. I want to save the entire world. I, wanna, I want to bring everything back to Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm doing that through you. And so what you find at the heart of the law when you get the law, and you're reading through all the strange laws in the Old Testament, was actually God was telling Israel, I need you to imitate what I am like to the world. So there's part of the law where where um, when you break it down, you see what God is like in the law. So the original intent of the law was made to enable Israel to be like Yahweh, or to be like God, their God. To infuse into their national life God's character and behavior. I mean, and that was their moral target. That was what they were aiming for. That was God was God was trying to shape them into. Um, a favorite expression in the Hebrew Bible, if you're reading through it, was walking in the way of the Lord. That is to say, walking in God's way, as distinct from the ways of other gods or other nations. So when Israel was called to be holy, we see in Leviticus, um, and it's given all the holiness code and the holiness law, especially in, in chapter 19 of Leviticus, they don't, it doesn't mean we need you to be extra super religious what God was trying to do when making them holy had actually a lot to do with um, being, having this down-to-earth practicality. So if you read the holiness laws in Leviticus, and they're hard to get through, they're hard to understand for us, but this is what God was doing. God was telling them to be generous to the poor. Um, in, In there, you see a fair treatment and payment of employees. You see practical compassion for the disabled and respect for the elderly. You see the integrity of the judicial process. You see safety precautions to prevent endangering life. You see ecological sensitivity. You see quality before the law for ethnic minorities. You see honesty in trade and business. You see all of that through the codes and the laws of Leviticus for the people of Israel. One Old Testament scholar um, named Christopher Wright says this about all of Leviticus, all of Levitical code and laws. It says, we call such matters social ethics or human rights, and we think that we are very modern and civilized for doing so. We go to great lengths to get them written pompously into declarations and for this and charters for that and codes for something else. God just calls them holiness. God says to Israel, "Be holy. Be set apart." Be different, and I want to infuse into your nation, into your society, as you are becoming a nation. I want to infuse what I am like—generosity. I want you to be generous to the to to the people who are slaves, because remember, you were a slave, and remember, I delivered you. And I want you—I want fair treatment and payment of employees, and I want compassion for disabled and respect for elderly. So God weaves this into their nation. So there's actually a lot of wisdom in the Old Testament. When Jesus said that all of the law hangs on love. So uh, uh, um, a, um, a teacher in the law came to Jesus one time. Jesus um, was an expert in the law, a teacher of the law. He was a rabbi. And they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, we have a question for you. What is the greatest of the commandments? There's 613 commandments. What's the best one? And this is a lot of debate around this. And Jesus says this. It's just brilliant. He says, the law is broken up into two parts. All of the law is broken up into two parts. Love God and love your neighbor. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. So where where did Jesus get this? Where did Jesus get this like love for God and love for neighbor? Jesus didn't just make that up. It's not some revolutionary new love ethic Jesus invented. It was the fundamental ethical demand of the Old Testament. Love God. And then this is how you, in that society for that time, this is how you're to love your neighbor. Now, all this sounds great. Now, if I'm saying this to you, it all sounds great. But you're reading the same thing I am if you're reading the Old Testament. And you know that a lot of disturbing things happen in the Old Testament. And when you look at it now, you don't see human rights. You don't see human rights and love for neighbor by our standards today. We see the opposite. We read it. We're like, wait, God, you cannot be telling me God's telling them to love their neighbor when they're doing this to them. Let me give you one example. There's a a ton I can use. Let me give you one. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 21. Uh, When you read through this, I guarantee you everyone probably dropped their Bible or skimmed over and like, oh, I don't want to listen to this. Deuteronomy 21.10. Okay, I'm just going to read to you. This is straight from the Scriptures. When you go to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands, and you take captives. If you notice among the captives a beautiful woman, and are attracted to her you may take her as your wife bring her into your home and have her shave her head trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured after she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month then you may go to her and be her husband and she shall be your wife if you are not pleased with her let her go wherever she wishes you must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her no one reads that in this room and says the bible is awesome no one, no one does that in this room. No one goes, see, look, this is my, God, thank you for this, my memory verse this week. How do I apply this? I'm going to apply this today. No one does that. If you do, you should, you should live on a compound or something. That's not, no one, no one reads that and goes, this is awesome. Now, this is the problem with the Bible in many people's opinions, especially the Old Testament, like you read stuff like that, you're like, this is why I don't read the Old Testament. Now, instead of looking at the Old Testament from a post-enlightenment critique, you must enter their world. That was indeed, their world was indeed barbaric. The ancient Near East was barbaric. And if you enter into their world, you actually start to see, maybe you can, you might not agree with me, but you start to see the beauty of God's law. First of all, notice how the law... Keep that verse up, by the way, especially the last part of it, if you don't mind. Notice how the law carefully restricts the rights of the victorious soldier. In that day, in the ancient Near East, if you were the victorious soldier, you had all the rights, you can do whatever you wanted to with anyone you beat in battle. You know what God does? He actually restricts the rights of the victor. He says, you cannot rape the people. That is not an option for Israel. You cannot rape anyone. Nor can you just take a woman for temporary sexual pleasure. You cannot do that. That is absolutely revolutionary. And, God says, if you do want a woman, you find her attractive and you want to marry her, you have to take full responsibility and, com- and, and make a commitment of giving her the status of your wife with all the legal and social benefits that went with that. But you can't do that immediately immediately. Don't do that right away. That's just wrong. Give her time to mourn and adjust to the loss that she has suffered. And after all that, if, the, if you regret your action, you can't just toss her like a piece of property. She has, to give the, she has to be given the normal, though tragic, freedom of a divorced wife. But, look at this last line. But... The last line is an implicit criticism of the whole entire practice. The last line is this. It says, don't sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. God says right in the law, this whole thing is dishonorable. This whole thing is not like awesome. This whole practice is dishonorable. God is not saying, this is the best thing in the world. God is saying, I'm entering into your world. I'm putting limits on the way you're going to act and react in war. But this is not awesome. You have dishonored her. This is not the ideal. So here's the point. We don't see this clearly now because we're so far removed from the world of the ancient Near East. But the laws that we read about that confuse us in the Old Testament are both accommodating for that culture and future-looking for that culture. God goes in and accommodates this culture. God entered into their world as they knew it and brought about radical reform to that culture, not necessarily to our culture today, but to that culture, and then incrementally pulled Israel forward to be a light to the nations, entered into their world Gave them laws that pulled them forward as a culture, as, as a society. Their culture was barbaric. And in some ways, Israel was a barbaric too. So God accommodated for that and was trying to move them forward toward his ideal, which ironically was behind them in the Garden of Eden. God was trying to move them back to the Garden of Eden. God was trying to bring them back to seeing everything as, as, um, as good where there is harmony and, and peace with God and peace with one another and peace with their environment. See, the li- life in the ancient Near East wouldn't just be alien to us with all its strange assumptions. It would be. It wouldn't just be alien to us. We would also see a culture whose social structures were badly damaged by the fall. Yesterday, my wife and I were driving home and she just had this, I don't know, like thought. She just started laughing and she's like, I just had this thought because we're just driving home through the mission, and um, she's like, I had this thought about um, if we took someone from like 15 years ago and then had this time machine, um, that's a great like, thought, by the way, time machines. And then she's like, if we had a time machine, and we brought them into today, and they were driving with us, they would probably go, why is everybody looking down at their hands? Like, what, what are the little machines? What do they have in their hands? Why is every, everyone looking at their hands? And She goes. It would just be. It would be so. I, and I. I said, yeah, absolutely. Like everyone's on their phone. Everyone's looking. Everyone. Everyone's walking, just doing this. And she goes. I, I think they, it would be. The, they would be uh, like disrupted by it. They're like, well, what's happening? Why? What's so special about that thing? Um, and that's that's the culture we live in. I mean, we, when you transfer one person to another culture, there's culture shock. If we were to transfer back to this culture, we would not understand it. And when we look at social structures, we would see all the social structures were damaged by the fall. And the point is this, it's within this context that God entered in and then raised up a covenant nation and gave people laws to live by, to help create a culture for them, a culture that was to be a light. So the practices of Israel were wholly different than their neighbors. And that's the point. Look at Exodus 19.6. God says, <clears throat> although the whole earth is mine, everything's mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what I'm going to do through you, Israel, you, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests. You're going to show the world what I am like. Israel would only be seen by the world through their practical obedience to God's law. When they lived into God's law for them, it would, it would, be like visibly, it would visibly raise questions about God. It would visibly raise questions about the God they worshiped and about the social quality of life they exhibited. And this was built into the law. Look at Deuteronomy 4, 6. God says, observe these laws carefully through Moses. Um, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Stop, listen to this. Observe all these things I'm telling you to the nations because the nations are going to look at this and they're going to, it's going to show the world at that time your wisdom and understanding who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? This was not snobbery. This was Israel, by obeying God, switching on the light in a dark place. They were going into Canaan, which was a dark and barbaric place, and they were switching on the light. Was it enough for us today? Probably not. But for them at that time, it was enough. God accommodates to Israel and the world of the ancient Near East, which is why we have the second point, the next point. The Old Testament, and specifically the law, is not timeless wisdom. The Old Testament law is not timeless wisdom or not timeless truth. Let me explain what I mean by that. At this point, you're probably thinking, what about do not murder? That seems pretty timeless. Yes, that is very timeless. But it's found in Genesis 1 and 2 on the sanctity and dignity of all life. Same with the Sabbath, taking a day off. Same with honoring God. Same with not committing adultery. Same with not coveting. The the tree would never have been eaten if they obeyed thou shalt not covet. So you can actually say the Ten Commandments are pulling Israel and thus the world back to the heart and the values of Genesis 1 and 2, life before paradise was lost. So, The Old Testament law that surrounded the nation of Israel, that surrounded these laws, are not and is not timeless. The law for the nation of Israel is not for all people at all time. The laws weren't permanent. They weren't the divine ideal for all persons everywhere. God even informed the people of Israel that a new enduring covenant is necessary so God even told Israel through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 3131 31, I'm going to give you a new I'm going to make a new covenant with you the old covenant is going to go away this there's going to be a new one and I'm going to write it on your hearts and Ezekiel would go on to say that I'm giving you a new heart so that you can obey me and follow me built into their very texts is a promise of a better more enduring covenant a new covenant so for example as followers of Jesus because of this new covenant We get to the Old Testament through Jesus. That's the only reason why any of us are reading the Old Testament, really, is because of Jesus, unless you're Jewish, and then you get to Jesus through the Old Testament. You go the other way. If you're Jewish, you read the Old Testament, and then you get to Jesus. If you're not Jewish, you read the New Testament, and then you get to the Old Testament through Jesus. So as followers of Jesus, we don't keep the food laws from the Torah anymore. All those laws that you're reading, we don't keep them. Not because they were bad or wrong, but because they were for an earlier part in the story. Same with farming laws and what kind of clothes you were to wear, etc. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians 3. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until faith was to come. That, that, that faith was to come, uh, would be, that was to come would be revealed. Sorry. So the law was our guardian. That word literally means nanny. The law was your nanny until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Paul says and uses the analogy that the law, the Torah was a nanny, to grow Israel up and make her ready for Messiah. And now Messiah has come, there's no need for a nanny. No one who's 28 has a nanny, you shouldn't have a nanny. If you have a nanny, we need to talk. This is what it's saying, like once you've grown up, the Messiah has come, there's no need for a nanny anymore. Um, Here's another analogy, and and it's not great, but it might be helpful. Think of it like this. Um, The first generation iPhone was not created to be the end-all, be-all of all smartphones. They didn't get up and say, we just created this new thing called an iPhone, and we'll never create another phone again. This is it. There was actually planned in it for the iPhone to be obsolete at one point. It was designed, actually, to pull technology forward. Um, through like, whatever, fingertip recognition and apps on your phone that would turn into an app store, et cetera, that was never intended to be enduring. That phone was intended to pull technology forward to what we have today and what we have for our future. The law is kind of like that. It's there and it was meant to pull Israel forward, to be like God and to show what God is like into all the nations. It was not the end-all, be-all. It was created to pull Israel forward because of their sin and because of the disobedience until christ and when christ came he said i did not come to abolish the law i've come to fulfill the law and what that means is like you fulfill like um when if if you're if you're engaged the fulfillment of your engagement will be your wedding the purpose of your engagement is to be married and so the engagement pulls you forward to your wedding day and then at your wedding day your engagement is fulfilled it's reached its purpose when Jesus says he fulfills the law, he pulls Israel to its purpose. It's him. It, he takes on its, their vocation. He takes on, he, he becomes the, the one who brings the law to its conclusion, to its expected end. This is what Jesus does. The law was kind of, that's what the law was for. Um, uh, Paul Copen, who wrote a wonderful book that I highly recommend to you called, Is God a Moral Monster?, Um, he writes this about this subject. He says, How then did God address the patriarchal structures, primogeniture, which is the rights of the firstborn, polygamy, warfare, servitude, slavery, and a number of the other fallen social arrangements that were permitted because of the hardness of human hearts? Answer, he met Israel halfway, partway. As Jesus stated in Matthew 19.8, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not always been this way. We could apply the same passage to many problematic structures within the ancient Near Eastern context. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted servitude and patriarchy and warfare and the like, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. They, the laws, were not ideal and universal. The law was looking forward to the time we would have the new covenant written on our hearts. So the question, how are we supposed to read the Old Testament without being completely disrupted by it? How do we read it so when we read it, we're not like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Well, the first part of the answer is this. You're supposed to be disrupted by the Old Testament. I think that's kind of the point. It's a narrative that builds and swells and resolves and then builds again and then swells and then resolves kind of, but doesn't completely resolve. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting finally for the one, the son who comes with healing in his wings. That's what you're supposed to do. So you're supposed to read Judges and be like, what the heck, Judges? You're supposed to, if you read Judges this last time and you pulled some moral from Judges, if you do, you're probably reading way too fast forward to Jesus, which is okay to do, but the narrative is supposed to work on you. Judges is supposed to work on you, and you're supposed to, at the end of Judges, going, "Um, there needs to be a king in this joint because these people are screwed up. (laughs) These people are really messed up. They need a king. And then you read 1 Samuel. What do they do? They get a king. That's, the, that's, the, that's what the narrative is supposed to do. So if you're reading it for like the timeless little moral, it's not there yet. You read it, and it's supposed to work on you. You read it, and you're going, this place is messed up. They need a king, and then they get a king, but that king's messed up. And they get another king, and he's kind of good. This is what Timothy Keller says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. The reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God through Jesus Christ has come and will, put, will come to put things right. That's the point of the Old Testament. It's supposed to work on you like that. So when you get to David in 1 Samuel, you see actually, okay, this is a good king, but he wasn't a perfect king. He's messed up as well. He power-rapes a woman and then kills her husband. What the heck? You're supposed to think, what the heck? The narrative is descriptive of deeply flawed humans, not prescriptive of how to act. The Old Testament is descriptive of deeply flawed humans, not prescriptive of how to act. 1 Corinthians 10 says this exact thing. Here's a sample of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, Now these things, speaking of the Old Testament, occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. I'll put that in there because that's a great line. And were killed by snakes. (laughs) And do not grumble as some of them did. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come, meaning Christ has come upon us. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. The Old Testament was written for us, not to us. It's not written to you. It's written to Israel. And it was written to Israel at that time. And it was written to Israel for getting them ready for Messiah, but it's written for us to learn from. John Barton, an Old Testament scholar, says about the story of David and how we're supposed to read that because we're reading that right now. The story of David handles human anger, lust, ambition, and disloyalty without ever commenting explicitly on these things, but by telling its tale in such a way that the reader is obliged to look at them in the face and to recognize his or her affinity with the characters in whom they are exemplified. That's what a narrative does. But what about their faith? You're like, well, don't they have faith? Yes. The hero status of the Old Testament figures is rooted in their, not in their moral perfection, but in their uncompromising dedication to the cause of Yahweh and their rugged trust in the promises of God rather than lapsing into idolatry of many of their contemporaries. So, lastly, what do we, what do we, what do we learn by reading the Old Testament? This is, this is kind of what I want to leave you with as we move into a time of response. And this is true. This is, I think this is universally true. We see this in the Old Testament. God meets us where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. God meets Israel where they are, and he pulls them forward. God meets us where we're at, and he pulls us forward toward the ideal which is found in Jesus. So when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he is going after two people who were walking away from the resurrection event. Why in the world are they walking away? I have no idea. I still don't know to this day. I cannot wait to ask them one day in heaven. Like, what? What was going on there? And then, what did Jesus talk about? But first, why were you walking away? And then Jesus goes after them. This is how we ended last week on Easter. That this is this is actually what happens in the Bible is that God is going after us, and God is going after us, and God doesn't stop going after us even once He's found us. When God starts to work in our life to change us, you don't control that change that you go through. God does. I've always found it funny that we come to Christ because of some, like, big thing we want to get over. It might be a a broken relationship, and we turn to God because of a broken relationship. And God's like, it's really not about that one relationship. I'm going to actually overhaul and redeem your entire sexuality, the whole thing. I'm not going to stop with this one heartbreak. I'm going after the whole thing. We think we need to get over this one addiction, We go to God like I'm going to get over this one addiction. I need your help. And God's like, I want to, I want to, I want you to completely be reoriented around about the way you treat every single substance and every single activity, where your ultimate pleasure and delight comes from Me. I'm not happy just to have you not drink yourself to death. I want you to see everything differently. And this is this is the character of God. God meets us where we're at. And wherever you're at today, God, God wants to meet you right where you're at. And the beauty of it is that God meets us where we're at and he pulls us forward. He pulls us forward and he works in us. And it says, Paul says that he works in us to will and to do according to his pleasure. He doesn't stop with one flaw. He's after total restoration of everything in every way that we see, everything. This is what God's after in us. This is the character of God. This is what we we see in the Old Testament. And so as we sang at the beginning of the first set of music, we sang that God delights in mercy. He delights in showing mercy. If you have been um, just disrupted by what you've been reading in the Old Testament or disrupted by a place where you're at in life right now, um, I want to invite you and lead you into into a prayer right now of like, inviting God into, in, into work and places in your life where you feel like, like um, you, need to, you need God to meet you right where you're at. Like you see the ideals, you're like, I don't know if I can even get to those ideals. I might, if I, if I knew about the ideals right now, I would crush me. You, I, you, you need God and you're saying, I need God to meet me where I am. And this is, this, is the, this is Yahweh God, this is the God of the Bible, the God that meets us where we're at. Um, would you do me a favor and close your eyes? And I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. Um, invite the worship team out. Let's, let's pray. God, I, I want to pray for um, everyone in this building, in this room right now. And I ask God that you would show us your character right now, God. Make it um, really palpable and manifest your loving, enduring character with us right now. We might, God, confess to you that we read the Old Testament with snobbery and superiority that we're so much better. Search our hearts. Right now, would you confirm to us that we're not that much better? We need this same God to meet us where we're at today. With all of the deceit that lies in our hearts, mixed mo- uh, uh, motives that lie in our hearts, our conflicting desires, all our questions. We're not that much better, God. Thank you, God, that you meet us where we're at, though. And so, Lord, I, I, I want to invite you on behalf of this church. Lord, would you meet, um, would you meet us where we are right now? In our brokenness, and our waywardness, if we're running from you, would you go after us like you did these um, goofy disciples on the road to Emmaus, just walking away from the resurrection event? If we just found ourselves just walking away, would you go after us? Would you meet us where we are? Would you minister to us? Would you pull us forward? I ask for sanctification for this church, that this church, by the power of your spirit, would become more like Jesus, more compassionate and holy and loving and kind and generous and self-sacrificing for the sake of your world, God. You saved us to be light in the world. And so I pray you pull us forward, God, today through repentance, through turning to you, through you meeting us where we're at. We're thankful, God, that you're so gracious to meet us where we're at, but pull us forward, please. Let us not stay in our mess. Let us not stay in our junk. Let us not stay the same. Move us onward, God. And may we learn from Israel that we would not have hard hearts that we would not steep ourselves in sexual morality, or idolatry or anger or lust or greed, that if that is our heart, meet us where we're at and pull us forward, God. Challenge us today. You are holy, Lord. You are holy, God. Draw us to you right now. Meet us where we're at, please, God. Thank you for being gentle and thank you for being strong. In Christ's name, amen.